Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. A safe place for leading with your heart. Hey, thanks for being here. You, Me, Empathy is the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective, a collaborative mental health community designed to empower each of us to grow our capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional wayfinding. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. You can support the show by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts, following us on social media at Yumi Empathy and Feely Human, and joining the Feely Human Collective community at feelyhuman.co. And now your host, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. This is episode 134 on wonder and uncertainty with Hillary L. McBride. Hillary is a doctor, a therapist, a researcher, an author. She is tremendously wise and such a beautiful storyteller. And I'm so, so excited to share her story with you. In this episode, we talk about the myriad ways to open-heartedness and empathy, the way our bodies remember trauma, emotion-focused communication and therapy, asking ourselves, what's happening here? And embracing the wonder and uncertainty as the bedrock of what it means to be human. Uh, We recorded this, of course, during the coronavirus pandemic, so Hillary talks about telehealth and so many other things. Hillary is a wonderful feely human, and I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. Before we get to the episode, though, I wanted to remind you to uh, please leave a review for Yumi Empathy in Apple Podcasts. It really does help out the show, get more listeners, uh, and it just takes a minute or two. It's a free way to support the show. I'm going to read a new review. This one's from Bird 93 The subject of the review is, You Are Not Alone. Josie says, Love this podcast. Excellent guests with a diverse range of experiences. No one leads the conversations with such openness and empathy. I feel less alone and more hopeful hearing everyone's insights. It truly is comforting. Well, thank you for that review, Josie. That makes me so happy to hear that and see that you are getting... What you're getting out of this uh, show, I I create this show because I want to give people the safe space to reflect and to hopefully find some healing in their own hearts and to do the wonder, the wonder work and asking the questions that we talk about a lot on this very episode with guest Hillary McBride. So please go to Apple Podcasts, search for Yumi Empathy and leave a review. Again, it just takes a minute or two and... It supports the show, and uh, thank you. And I'll read your reviews on the intros. So, there you go. Um, Before we get to the episode, uh, please uh, check out feelyhuman.co, feelyhuman.co, feelyhuman.co. It's uh, the Feely Human Collective. If you haven't checked it out, please do. Um, On there right now, we have Feely Human 101 as a free two-week online workshop that I developed Hope you can check that out and sign up. Again, it's free and easy and uh, go at your own pace. So um, check that out. Also, we have a book club going on right now. We're reading The Deepest Well by Nadine Burke Harris, who's the Surgeon General of California. It's all about uh, the ACE studies, the Adverse Childhood Experience studies. It's eye-opening and kind of devastating, but so important. Uh, So... Join the book club. That's also uh, accessible at feelyhuman.co. What else? Uh, support Feely Human and me by buying stuff in the shop. Things like t-shirts and pins and stickers. Uh, they're not too expensive, but I understand it. You know, things are probably tight right now. But, uh, you know, check it out. Uh, if you can uh, buy some things, do so. Uh, what else is going on in Feely Human land? Uh... I guess uh, if you want to write, if you are a writer and you like to write and explore your feelings that way, uh, write in the journal for the Feeling Human Collective. It's free and uh, it's a way for me to publish your uh, wonderful writing. So check that out. 
And I'll leave it there. Let's get to the episode, shall we? This is uh, this has been going on far too long. Uh, this intro, but um, I love you. Thank you for being a part of this wonderful community. Make sure to follow Feely Human and Yumi Empathy on Instagram at Feely Human and at Yumi Empathy. No longer on Twitter because Twitter is a cesspool of no. I shouldn't say that. I just was not feeling Twitter. It made me feel bad, and uh, I'm cutting it out because that's a boundary I wanted to create. So let's get to the episode. Um, this is episode 134 on wonder and uncertainty with the tremendously wonderful, I'm saying wonderful too many times, but it's true. She's wonderful and amazing and so thoughtful, and I love talking with her, Hillary L. McBride. Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, a podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of You, Me, Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that makes us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi mm-hmm. Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I am filled with gratitude because I'm here with author, researcher, the liturgist, podcast contributor, and feely human who sees the good in all of us for simply being. It's Hillary McBride. Hello, Hillary. Hi, so happy to be with you today. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy you're here. I'm a big fan. I love the liturgist podcast. Oh, I love the work that you put out. It's um, it's compelling. It's thoughtful. It's inspiring. Uh, you just inspire me. Oh, thank you so much. That's so meaningful for me. I yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. Oh, good. Um, so before we get into it, we always kick off the show, Hillary, with just an emotional check in. How, how are you doing? Uh, right now, I feel uh, a sense of gratitude. I am noticing feeling really present in my body and hopeful about the day. I saw some patients this morning and felt like we did such good work and feel so moved every time I get to do clinical work and people let me into their lives and their stories and we get to experience transformation together. And so I'm just coming off of what felt like such important, um, such an important piece of my work and right into a conversation with you. And so my heart's feeling really full and open mm. and present right now. That's lovely. Yeah. And you, do you get to do an emotional check-in too? I do. And I appreciate yeah. that mirror. Uh, but I have some follow-ups. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I was just wondering, you know, living, you know, we're recording this in the time of, coronavirus, right? Mm-hmm. And are these telehealth uh, check-ins with yeah. your with your ther- uh, patients? Yes. Yeah, they are. So um, things have moved online. And I feel so grateful that in a time when therapy is uh, kind of a prom- prominent need for a lot of people, maybe in a way that, that feels new to some of them, it, that I'm still able to work and accompany people through this season of their life and all of the uncertainty. So yeah. yes, things have moved online and I just, I'm so grateful that that's a possibility. Yeah. That's amazing to hear. And, and I wonder, I wonder like, um, so I know you, you do uh, a lot of sort of work in trauma mm-hmm. and, and, you know, as someone who has 
I feel like some childhood trauma and I'm still sort of working on my old stories that I'm holding on to. Uh, and I, and, 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 and trauma being something that is held in the body and it's such a physical thing. Is there, yeah. is there a disconnect in the telehealth piece of it in terms of just like the body piece? Is that a harder to access? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably harder for people who do maybe more hands-on work related to the somatic experience of trauma, but mm. I, I feel like it's almost as good. Not not quite. Nothing to me ever feels the same as being in the room with another person in my body, in their body, and them being able to see me breathing and feel in the room with me that I am regulated and feel safe and present but we can do a lot online. I'm going to be grateful for the day we can go back to in-person. Hmm. But even I found ways to do uh, EMDR online, which is an eye movement or bilateral stimulation-based form of trauma processing, which often involves using using the body in, in a way that kind of circumnavigates cognition. But it that even we've been able to adapt. So we just hope that the internet connection's good. Yeah. <laughs> and uh that there aren't any distractions and we do the best that we can wow that is amazing to hear i'm so i'm so happy that you can continue and i've talked to other therapists about this as well and and you know while certainly a change it's it's so good to hear that people can still get access you know especially at a time that is so new and disruptive and and uh, change 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 uh, is uncomfortable yeah Well, one of the things that has been maybe surprising for some people, maybe unsurprising for other people is this, uh, I think the way that our body is remembering for some people, the, the historical trauma that has similarities to what's happening right now. So for people who experience neglect, um, or isolated intentionally or unintentionally from other people, for people who had, uh, the kind of, uh, struggling with some sort of diagnosis and not really sure if they would live or die or someone they knew would live or die, that there is something about this time that is really deeply unsettling for people. It's reminding their bodies of what they've been through before and the traumas that that feel a lot like this. And so I feel grateful that as a trauma clinician, I've been able to continue doing my work because for some people, this feels even more difficult than it is for the rest of us because it's too close mm. to what painful in the past. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so <laughs> to honor your question to me, I, mm, yes. <clears throat> I, I am also, my heart is full in the moment because just a couple hours ago I had, well, prior to coronavirus happening, I did a little empathy workshop at a local art cool. college here in Southern California. And it was my first time really doing it in person like that. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> it was so it was such a beautiful, affirming experience. And um, the homework for the artists, they're all like beautiful artists and illustrators. The homework was for them to create uh, postcards to illustrate what empathy means to them. Uh. And I was, I hopped on a Zoom call with the instructor and all of the students and was able to view all of their work. Wow. Um, and I, I, you know, they got to talk about it. Then I got to reflect back and, and it was just so like I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it because it was just <laughs> so like it's just such a reminder uh, in regards to empathy. And thinking about empathy, especially now, there's so many access points to get there, I think. There's so many access points to, to, to find empathy. And I think we often, as humans, think of empathy in this way that's maybe sometimes binary or we have to be in the shoes of the person, right? And that's the only way. But I think there's so many access points. And for visual learners, like looking at that art and, and you know, filling their heart and thinking about ways that... that they can access empathy for themselves. It was just such a beautiful experience. I'm just filled. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so glad I can hear that as as you're you're talking. It's so evident that this was so moving to you. You're so right about the the multiple access points, and it makes me think about how how if we know ourselves well, we might be able to know the easiest entry points to to open heartedness for us. For some people, that might be a visual medium. For other people, it's language or or even noticing 
noticing what's happening in someone's body or feeling that in their body as you're with them, feeling that in your body as you're with them, that when we are looking, when we are looking, there is a way for all of us to connect with whoever's in front of us. Mm. Yeah, so true. So true. And I, I, I wonder for you, Hillary, you know, thinking about the time we're in now and the, what empathy means and, and where it can bring us and how it can connect us and, and heal us. Like, what are, what are some ways that we can get there in a better way? I mean, what I mean by that is like, I guess, I guess I just feel like right now, um, there are like, there's such a beautiful collective empathy happening. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, like, how do we better sort of broaden what empathy means right. and how, cause I, I just feel like there, I, I keep coming across this. There's, there's, there's this binary, like there's this binary sort of explanation of what empathy is, but it's so nuanced. And I think it can be um, maybe overwhelming at first. And what I keep saying to people is it's a practice, right? What do you mean when you keep saying it's binary? Can you tell me what you're meaning by that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess, you know, and I'm just like maybe thinking of this on the fly, but I, I, when I, when I first started engaging in empathy, like my interpretation of it was like, I have to be uh, someone who's experienced the same exact thing as this other okay. person, right? Okay. Um, but the reality is that's not true. Like I, I can feel pain and I, I can feel discomfort and I can go there emotionally with someone and, and still meet them halfway and, and, and create that empathetic connecting space. And, but that just takes practice like anything. Mm. Yeah. For me, the, thank you for explaining that. That helps me understand what you mean by that. I, I find that a lot of my learning about improving empathy skills came when I started working with couples and doing couples therapy, because I think you're right. If we are trying to connect with another person and we assume that we can only ever really understand their experience, if we have had that exact experience, we exclude ourselves from feeling the points of connection that are present, that do exist and, and looking for and situating ourselves within those. So often in kind of nonviolent communication or doing emotion focused communication between couples, there's some formulas that are helpful that help us shortcut or get to empathy sooner. And, and they involve saying, you know, when this and this happened, I felt this mm. because this, you know, this is what, what mattered to me. And this is why that mattered to me. And I always encourage people to name the feeling that they've had instead of just talking about the context or the environment or what happened, because we may never have been through those exact experiences, but we all know what it's like to feel sad. Right. We all know what it's like to feel afraid. So even to try to build empathy in another person, sometimes we, we spin a little bit and we tell a story where like, if I tell you more information, then you'll really understand the kind of pain that I was in. And in doing so, we get away from the human piece, which is not the specifics and more the centrality of emotion in our lived experience. Mm. It's hardwired into each of us. It's a bodily process. Uh, each emotion has an adaptive action tendency. It's there. We've evolved with it to help us be safe, to know who we are, to belong in our tribes, to uh, protect ourselves and others from danger. I mean, there's all sorts of goodness for every single emotion. And if we can see the the emotion, if we can know the emotion underneath for us and we hand that to another person, it might make it more likely that they could understand our experience just by using the emotion word as an entry point. Yeah. And so whenever I'm, I'm trying to do empathy with somebody, which is a huge, huge part of my job. I mean, to be a therapist, we could say that empathic attunement is the bedrock for mm. all therapeutic change. For me, I'm trying to do that constantly. What do you feel? Oh, anger. I know anger. Of course. Yes. Yeah, and I bet you felt it here in your body. And so sometimes we can use our familiarity with emotion, not only to build empathy, but then to help somebody else 
build more insight into their own emotion, emotional landscape. Yeah. I teach, uh, I teach at the university here in Vancouver at university of British Columbia. And one of the classes that I teach is intro to counseling skills. And the focus really is on empathy. So just while we were talking here, I pulled up a quote that I regularly use in my slides with my students from Carl Rogers, who was really one of the first, Oh yes. I love yes. The, kind of like the empathy, uh, granddaddy for us and understanding really getting into the world of another person. And so Carl Rogers says in a, a therapeutic context that empathic being with means entering the private perceptual world of the client and becoming thoroughly at home in it. It involves being sensitive moment to moment to the changing felt meanings which flow in this other person, to the fear or rage or tenderness or confusion or whatever he or she is experiencing. Empathy means temporarily living in the other's life, moving about in it delicately without ever making judgments. And Carl Rogers goes on to say in another quote that we are living in the world of another person as if, as if we are in the world without forever, without ever forgetting the as if quality that we are mm -hmm. dipping our awareness into someone else's experience without forgetting that it's their experience and not necessarily ours. Right. Wow, that's so beautiful. Mm. I, I'm, I'm happy I have it recorded because <laughs> I feel like I just want to play it again and again right before I go to bed. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's so beautiful. I love that. And I yeah. I've I've I uh I first heard about Carl uh Rogers. I guess my friend Tony, who's also a therapist, had mentioned mm -hmm. him to me and he's he's the one that's um is it people centered or or human centered therapy? Yeah, person centered. Or? Person centered, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So close. <laughs> <laughs> so close. Yeah. So close. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for um walking through empathy and, and as it pertains to to your space. And I, I you know, you do so very eloquently. Um and yeah, so I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Could you, uh, Hillary, you know, I, I, I'd love to get, you know, you're at a place now where, um, I think you, are you, are you a doctor now? Officially? I am. I Congratulations. am. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It's amazing. It feels the exact same. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much the exact same well, as before. <laughs> you've got to be like making all your friends call you doctor though, right? No, I don't. <laughs> and you know what? I have a, I have a weird relationship with that mm. prefix because, I think about how it has been used in power hierarchies in order oh. to kind of create or establish a sense of power in certain relational dynamics, which devalue the other person. Uh, it makes it seem like, oh, in some way, like I'm, I'm more important than you. At least I've seen it used that way. And so yeah. I feel adversive about using it. Like it diminishes the fact that we're all just humans to say like, oh, I have this special title that you don't have. So <laughs> I yes. feel yeah, a little bit resistant to it. And yet I notice that other people don't feel that way about using it with me, or it feels like <laughs> even my existing patients have loved saying, saying it to kind of signify how you have worked for, you've been in university for 11 years after, you know, after high school, you've wow. done yeah. a ton of work. We get to celebrate that you have done that and come through the other side alive with this little change in your name. But to me, it feels like, I don't know. I feel <laughs> worth it. <laughs> I get it. I get it. And, and I, I appreciate you saying that. Cause I, I think, um, I, I guess I just bring that up because you're at a place now where, you know, you, you've established yourself as a, mm -hmm. uh, prominent person in the therapy space, researcher, you know, just a beautiful voice in the world of mental health. And, I'm wondering like your origin story. So ah, yes. uh, a question I ask my guests all the time is, uh, can you give me a prominent um, moment, a seminal moment in your life, whether it's in childhood or young adulthood that, that stick out in your memory as being an important piece of your journey and speak to where you are now? Yeah. Um, to separate a piece feels like it is trying to pull a thread out of a sweater and not have the sweater <laughs> fall apart because they're all, mm -hmm. I think all of these moments is being woven together so phenomenologically, so um, unique to my story in the way that everyone has these moments that are unique to their story. 
But when you did say that, I thought of a piece. Just first, the first flash to my mind was growing up. Uh, I remember in elementary school, I would often be asked for advice from my friends or if people had, like I'm talking in like grade three, grade four, if there was trouble, relational trouble, that people would come to me and ask ask for advice or, or uh, a way forward as if I knew something. And I don't think I knew anything that they didn't know, except maybe I shared my opinions more confidently. Mm. <laughs> so there was a sense of you could get an answer from me about something. Yeah. Uh, there's that. But then I think a, a really significant moment for me was I had been living in the Philippines in a birth house, helping deliver babies in this rural area of the Northern Philippines in Luzon Valley and thinking I'd wanted to be a midwife and then coming home and not getting into midwifery school and deciding to study psychology just while I was waiting to reapply and feeling like I really understood my calling, that there were all of these things about midwifery that I loved that were maybe more punctuated and more fine-tuned in my ability to accompany someone through psychological distress. And I felt this knowing of purpose and identity that there was something I loved about being in the space with people where it seems like there is uncertainty, where there is suffering, where a way forward feels impossible. And, and I get to hold within myself this reminder to them of hope and of who they are on the other side and support the emergence of this part of them that knows the way forward and knows who they are. And so I think of that as being so parallel to the midwifery journey, which is to say birth is not, uh, birth is not a medical condition. It is not a pathology. It is this transformation and transition where there is intensity for sure. And, and you could say pain and pressure and, uh, uncertainty and moments that feel insurmountable, but with a supportive, informed, and equipped other, a person can remember that they are good, that this is okay, that something is being born in the midst of the pain, and can remind them of that when they, they forget themselves. Mm. So I think about midwifery, my journey from wanting to be a midwife and, and being with women in labor to being a therapist is actually just a natural extension of the part of me that wants to accompany people in these moments that feel unmanageable. And that together, because we are doing it together, they they get through. And not wow. because we rescue them, but because they can access some part in themselves that feels hard when they're overwhelmed by the intensity of the experience. Yeah. Wow, that's so beautifully said. Thank you. You're like the uh, the mirror and guide in one, and you're reminding them that they have it in them innately, right? And right. And you're also reflecting back like this this thing that we humans can do, which is contain multitudes, right? We can hold mm -hmm. the joys and we can hold the pains simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And when we're in it, uh, sometimes it's hard. And so, someone like a midwife or a therapist being able to remind or allow, you know, guide the patient yeah. back outward to look back on, okay, what am I experiencing here? Right. So that's so great. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a, a guide um, or an accompaniment is another way of thinking about it too. Uh, as opposed to maybe one of the things that can feel appealing at times about being a therapist, which can feel like the power of being a rescuer. Mm. But whenever, whenever the motivation to be with someone in their pain is to rescue them, then that is almost always more about us than it is about <laughs> supporting them to be fully them. Oh, yeah. I know that. I'm an Enneagram type too. Mm. I'm a helper. Mm -hmm. And helpers can go down to manipulation and, and right. without, you know, without their knowledge sometimes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And this this midwife journey, how 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 long before uh, was this before you started, you know, practicing or studying therapy? 
Right. Uh, so I was in the Philippines and I've continued my doula work since then, mostly just for close friends uh, and women that feel like sisters to me. But uh, that was 2007 when I was in the Philippines and I started grad school in 2011, 2012. And then I started my private practice in 2014. Okay. So there was more schooling that had to happen. I had previously been uh, a music major studying performance violin. I grew up as a violinist and violin was kind of my prominent uh, source of of value and identity. And there was a big shift when I decided to leave school and actually go go to this birth house. And yeah, so going going to school, finishing my psych undergrad credits, getting getting into a graduate program, all of that took a little bit of time. And so yeah, I think about now that I'm saying it, seven years between or eight years between when I had that insight and when I was actually sitting with people, owning my own business uh, and and doing that work. Wow. You know, going back to the little girl, little Hillary, uh, who, you know, appeared to have the answers. Right. What, what do you think that's about? Like, were you were you supported as a as a kid you know what was the what was the um the familial space like oh yeah both my parents are therapists and there you go (laughs) and so the discourse around mental health and being accessible and emotionally tuned to other people was a really familiar comfortable and easy to navigate space for me uh i think because i was for the most part so well attuned to emotionally. I have, my parents are deep, deeply empathic. Um, yeah, I, I could write volumes about what it was like to grow up with a dad who is emotionally in tune and sensitive and nonviolent and never yelled. That was oh, a real wow. part of my amazing. experience of, I think, even coming into feminism. Mm. But for me, yeah, I felt so attuned to and so seen that it, I had well, maybe I could say, I don't know which comes first, but I, I was really deeply sensitive and really in tune with my feelings. And that often meant that I was really disturbed by the pain of other people. Um, my mom recalls stories. I don't remember this, but my mom recalls stories of of me giving up my possessions and my lunches to kids in my school growing up who didn't, who had unstable home environments and didn't have lunches provided for them. And that I would come home and and go hungry because I couldn't bear, couldn't bear the suffering of those other kids knowing that they were hungry. Hmm. And so there, that might even mean like this kind of over attunement to the pain of others and the inability to know how to take care of myself in the midst of other people's suffering. But I also think of just this really precious quality of my younger self who, who felt deeply with and for other people and wanted to alleviate their pain or, or at least kind of manage my own distress because of their distress. Sure, sure. I think that's, excuse me, I think that's quite beautiful. And I'm struck by how how that sort of exists in the world uh, in terms of having that, those supportive parents and having that reflect back at you. Because I, you know, I don't think... Um, it certainly wasn't the case in my case. Like I, I grew up as a very sensitive person and still very sensitive and value that. But I, uh, in the environment I grew up in, my reaction wasn't to, to showcase that talent or to, you know, to reflect outward. It was to go inward and shut down. Right. Yes. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. As is such an important way to protect that sensitivity. Yeah. yeah like even absolutely. I think of even that as being good and beautiful in a way when mm. we know and when we feel implicitly that it's not safe for that part of us to be seen. What a protective part of us that comes up and says, let's tuck that away. Yeah. Obviously yeah. has its limitations in terms of its helpfulness, but <laughs> we can see even that as being good. Yes, absolutely. Thank oh, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Was was God, religion, was that part of your childhood? Oh, yeah, big, big time. Um, really, really important in my family growing up. 
And I think part of that was my my parents grew up in the prairies, so a a province over from where I live now and where I grew up. And they left they left their home and came to Vancouver, came to BC, both of them, and set up shop here. And they both came from really big families and didn't have anybody. And the church really became our family. So. I would see my grandparents one, or my grandmother once in a while. We'd come go back to visit her, but infrequently, and we didn't really have much of a relationship. But all of the aunties and the uncles in the church were were family. They were, you know, birthday gifts and cards at at uh, at birthdays, and really supporting and marking special occasions in our life. And so it really felt like church was not only a place where we practiced worship or practiced. Uh, our our understanding of faith, but really this extended family for me that I felt so supported by. And my parents were uh, leaders in the church that I was in. And so that comes with a little bit more visibility Hmm. in terms of I probably was known and loved by some people because they knew and loved my parents and, and understood the role that my parents had in their life. But it, yeah, it was a really important part of our life and uh, still is to this day. My my faith looks different and has a different quality to it than it did then. But I am so grateful that I was a part of a tradition that showed me not just like here are some of the rules to believe about God, but here are people who love you and are going to show you what community looks like. Yeah. How do you how do you get there? You know, and and I'll just add a little bit of context in that in my own sort of anecdote, which is I grew up in a religious home, and I think um, you know evangelical Christian, uh, uh, or as Pete Holmes calls, vanilla Christian. <laughs> um, and I, you know, it was it was you know we went to church on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, we went to like uh, a Christian elementary school. Um, and, uh, and it was, you know, <laughs> it was, it was always a challenge for me because my father, who was a pretty violent person, mm-hmm. would, um, you know, scream, What would Jesus do? Uh, wow. Wow. you know, which would, to me, right, growing up and thinking about, who Jesus is and looking back and reflecting on that and, and, and seeing now that Jesus was this compassionate, kind, you know, um, inclusive person. Right. Um, you know, the reaction is like, Oh, well obviously not yell, um, in such a violent way towards your young children. Right. Yeah. And so I had this like, um, disconnect and I, I think Mm -hmm. it took me a while and I'm still, I think, working on it. Like, I don't ascribe to any religion today, although I do see a lot of beauty in a lot of it and, and spirituality mm-hmm. and what that means for people. But I have, I have this, I don't know if it's like a hole in my heart or a weight of the, some of the practices of people within certain mm-hmm. brands of Judeo-Christian religions um, that I, I I have a hard time with sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Do you relate to any of that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, in some ways, I felt inoculated from some of that because I felt this presentation from my parents of a faith that was complex in that my parents could say, Uh, this is what the church is saying is important, but we think Jesus is saying this, so we're going to do this instead. And feeling the the freedom to negotiate what faith looked like based on justice issues was something that I was encouraged to do. Mm. But I definitely, as I'm hearing you say this, I think about, well, two things. One, there are people in every community, in every context, religious or otherwise, that are healthy and unhealthy, or or people who are more aware of their wounding and less aware of their wounding, and people who can more prominently stand in their in their giftings and people who can do that less. That that happens regardless of what space that we're in. But there's something about a religious space where the expectation is you are to be loving, 
that makes us feel so uh, so wounded when we see that that kind of behavior that is just human behavior. Right. And I think of the number of times I've heard people say, even to me, like you can't. I can't believe you said that hurtful thing. You're you're supposed to be a Christian, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, okay, so this instead of seeing this as a place where we get to ask questions about what's happening here, <laughs> ask questions about who who God is, this feels like a, a barrier to being seen as a human somehow, or a set of expectations. So I I don't know. I think in certain evangelical spaces that I've grown up in, there has been this story that the church is, is meant to be different from the world or set apart in some ways. And I guess I'm not so interested in seeing it that way uh, because I think that sets us up to feel really wounded when, when there are just hurting people inside and outside the church, but that the hypocrisy definitely is um, striking at times. Yeah. And I love what you said about, um, it feeling like a separate thing when it maybe perhaps shouldn't, right? Mm-hmm. And I, and that's that's the, I, that's certainly something I felt. It it you know at times it feels uh, righteous, right? And and this yeah. sort of judgmental force, um, sort of looking down, right? You know, and and, and maybe that's my own sort of uh, guilt or something, but I guess. Here's where I struggle, Hillary, and I'm wondering um, how you relate to this as a therapist. So in my own mental health journey, right, and and coming to my own self and, and at 38 years old, really for the first time, truly knowing and accepting mm-hmm. and loving myself. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time to get there, um, you know, um, and, and that through that, a lot of therapy and introspection mm-hmm. and really getting into the muck of my feelings yeah. and understanding what they are and how my past has impacted myself today and all of this stuff and just doing a tremendous amount of looking, right? Yes, yes. To know myself. Yes. Um, in my experience, there's sometimes a lot of not looking and not a lot of interest in knowing in certain aspects of the religious tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, is there a question? Yeah, I guess, how do you bridge those two? Like, yeah. you being a person of faith and having this perspective that I appreciate and value very much, and then your your brain as a researcher, author, uh, therapist, trauma therapist, like, and valuing, you know, the sort of importance um, of improving our mental health through looking at our emotions, through being curious, right? Um, introspective, you know, those sorts of things mm-hmm. um, sometimes seem uh, antithesis to, mm. uh, you know, a certain religious practice. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in your question, um, I immediately think about who I am as a therapist and who I am as a person And there is overlap between them, but there is also difference. Mm. Like we talked about earlier in our conversation, the multiplicity of selves within the self, that there is a part of me that is asking questions like, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to be human? And how do I answer those questions myself? And how I answer those questions myself to some degree informs even why I sit with other people in their pain and why I do some of the things that I do. But there is also this distinction between the way I answer those questions and the way that I expect other people to answer those questions. And so my fundamental understanding about humanity is that we are good and that we are lovable and that we belong to each other and that when we can believe in our goodness and experience our goodness as something that is uh, rightfully ours, that it can diminish the inability that we have to see goodness in other people and to accompany them in in their stuff, in the challenges and the struggles of life. And I, I think that the way that I answer some questions about what's happening here 
like what is what is life and and what does it mean and what's important which are really the questions that I have tried to answer within my tradition and also found sometimes limitations within my tradition to to answering those questions um really invite me to consider again the goodness of of a person and the choice that I get to make to see uh, God in every single person, God being love, mm. uh, really in, in everything around me, everywhere I look. And I think that if, if I think about this, these two, two parts of your question, what I, what I have come to believe is that some of the religious traditions that we we f- we go to or are born within to answer some of these questions have done a really bad job of answering these questions or have taken us further away from ourselves and our goodness and our connection to each other and in those cases it is s- maybe even i could say a form of salvation to come away from those social contexts those religious contexts and that i i believe if god is love and god is the the something, the isness in us that is moving us to always towards fullness and growth and wholeness, that I could argue that God wants for us to leave religion sometimes because mm. it is getting in the way of our ability to know and experience God's self, the love, the isness of, of being that is moving through and sustaining all of us around us. So I know that that isn't necessarily a direct answer to your question, but for me, I'm perplexed by the the complexity of life and what it means to be human. And yeah. I keep finding that whenever I dip my bucket of curiosity into this well of mystic Christianity, I never come up dry. Mm. And I'm also feeling fortunate that I was supported to to understand faith as a flexible and developmental process within which change is beautiful and good and allowed. And I was never um, just to kind of contextualize this because my parents are therapists. My, my dad's an academic and worked for a long time in medicine from a growth perspective, from a, a social support perspective I would often talk about human growth and development and the natural tra- trajectory of the human being to change and evolve and adapt and follow this cycle of transformation throughout the lifespan. And I was always encouraged to believe that that was okay about faith too, that there was, there didn't need to be rigidity and that the things that you believe about the world at five are really um, problematic. If you still believe them at 50, Mm, right? Five, your daddy is your superhero. (laughs) It's he's perfect. He's everything. He's the only person in the world who exists and who is your sun and your moon or your mom or your whatever, right? Yeah. And and yet for me to believe that now at 32, I'd be missing the fullness and richness of my dad and humanity of him if I continued to see him that way. So I'm allowed to change my beliefs about the world and that is good and part of health. And I think my ability to see faith and belief and religion in the exact same way inoculated me from some of the rigidity that that kept me feeling like I could only exist a certain way to be lovable. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That makes me so happy listening to you listening mm-hmm. to you uh say that. Um it's such a beautiful way to put it. Mm. And it makes me it gives me hope and it it just, I think it affirms like where I think I, I was coming from or mm. how I think about it, you know, because I, I, and I love, I love the thought around, you know, at five, those beliefs, you shouldn't have them at 50. And, and, and it, it's true of how we perceive each other too. I think that happens a lot in family mm. situations, right? Where we, we want to see a person a certain way because it's, maybe more comfortable for us or um, easier. Yes, yes. But we need to let people go just as we need to let our beliefs go and we need to like let it transform. We need to let it uh, allow for the fullness and the growth that you're talking about. Yeah. 
the adaptation of the mm. human experience is is sometimes felt for us as problematic or uncertain or inconsistent. And yet I think it's built into our fabric of the human journey. And maybe just another way to say, to answer your question more directly is I think of myself as being human first and how I'm answering my existential questions about what does it mean to be human? Uh, find me going to a particular tradition, which I, I seem to never be able to scrape the bottom of, mm. but under no circumstances would the way that I try to answer the questions I have eclipse the humanness that is me and that is you and that is all of us. And so I feel particularly unattached to anybody going to the same place that I do to answer human questions. But I find beauty in the question asking mm. and the humanness of that and the, the mystery of, of that which really drives, I think, a big part of my clinical work and most of my research experience. Like how the questions I'm interested in are all phenomenological questions and phenomenology is situated within the landscape of continental philosophy and existentialism. It's asking, what does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. So almost all of my research is, okay, you had this experience. What was it like? Tell us more. What can we learn from you? Let me get inside of that experience and really get to know how it how it did something to you to know that or to feel that or to live that. And so my research, even in of itself, is not trying to prove anything. It's all exploratory. It's all, what do you know that I could learn something from? And so they, I think of myself, the congruence or maybe the part in between these two. I see the Venn diagram of like the person that I am and then who I am professionally. The space in the middle is just question asking mm. yeah. and, and wondering and wonder. Right. And it's such a, um, that space is a connecting space. Mm. And I think um, there are times in some of the, you know, the rigidity that we're talking about where it's not a connecting space, mm. you know, mm. it's, it's sometimes maybe the opposite of a connecting space. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that I think of of that as being certainty. Mm. It is so impossible to uh maybe that's not right. I was gonna say it's impossible to connect when there's certainty, but maybe it would be possible to connect with someone else who was certain about the same thing you were certain about and it could <laughs> there you be go. like shared identity. Yeah. But I think of broader connection uh as only really happening when we can come to things from a state of wonder and curiosity. And I often find myself most in trouble when I feel like I know things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it reminds me of the position that I have. Um, even like we were talking about of expertise to say, yes, I'm an expert in these things. I have a PhD in this. I've researched this technically. I'm an authority voice on these specific things in kind of in mental health or the human experience because of the research and academic work I've done. But at the same time, anytime you say that you are disconnecting yourself from all of the things that you do not know and closing off a position of wonder that invites me to know even more and be more connected to myself and others and information and the being human. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that so much. The being human is the curiosity. It's the knowing it's the con is the search yeah. It's not saying yeah. I know this thing and then end game, you know, mm-hmm. let's move on. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I love that so much. And thank you. Thank you for putting that in that way. That's mm. really beautiful. Mm, you're welcome. Thank you. So I have uh, some questions here that came in from Instagram. Okay. Uh, this one is from at uh, Laura Carr 22. She says, how to pick a church that honors humanity? How do I pick a church mm-hmm. that honors humanity? Mm. Yeah, I mean, as I, I can't necessarily speak to that as an expert. Sure. <laughs> I can only speak to that as someone who has wondered about that myself. But yeah. I, um, I think about the people who are in the church and if they honor humanity and if you can connect with them. And I don't know necessarily if we could ever find a church that would be perfect because right. uh, I think any church that is actually good holds a multiple 
holds a multiplicity of perspectives and attitudes. Um, I've told, I've talked about this story publicly before I, my husband and I, when we first got married, decided to go to a church where we didn't actually agree with everything that they taught because it felt like a way to be a part of a community that would continue to keep our hearts soft and keep us asking questions and Mm. keep us being with people who we knew and believed were different than us. And so I guess that maybe the question instead of maybe a different question would be, what is a, what is a kind of church that I need most? And, and is a church where I can settle myself in knowing I don't have to, to feel defensive or protective of myself or other people in this moment. That's what I need. That would be most, most nourishing. Um, but maybe another way of thinking about it too, is where is a community that I could grow and what does growth mean to me? Does growth mean sitting in uncertainty? Does growth mean connecting with people who I feel are different than me? Or does growth mean I could learn or I could be at ease because the rest of my life has felt so unsafe that being in a community where I feel at ease would be helping me. Mm. So maybe I, I would ask some more questions. Um, I always like to, whenever I, I have switched churches, meet with some of the people in leadership and and really ask them about their experience of, of faith and what they believe. And uh, if I would be welcome, if some of the people who historically churches have uh, dismissed or devalued if they would be welcome, uh, what their premise or their, what their perspective is on uncertainty and doubt and, uh, sin and freedom and humanness and salvation. And just asking and getting to know some of those questions from the mouths of the people who are leading the church. And one of my favorite things is when leaders are like, those are such good questions. I don't know. We're figuring it out. Or, (laughs) you know, like we're, let's make room to keep answering those questions together and, and model wonder, model curiosity, model the humanness themselves. Yeah. Do you, do you find that, um, you know, maybe cause when I was growing up in the church, like homosexuality is a sin, right? Mm, don't, mm-hmm. you know, don't have sex before you get married. You know, these, these, I think, uh, archaic, um, ideas, do you find, um, those sort of maybe lessening over time, you know, the, the power of those ideas and, and seeing churches that are being more open hearted and and inclusive in that way. I definitely think that there is a change happening and has been happening for a little while. Um, often through the blood, sweat and tears and the trauma of, of the LGBTQIA2S community who has worked tirelessly to have their voices heard. I, I think that there is also a doubling down in other communities too, of like, we need to protect ourselves from the, from the wickedness of, uh, you know, the, the new paradigm or new way of seeing scripture and the liberal uh, subjectivity through which people are reading the holy words of God. So, yeah, I think in some ways there's even more freedom. I didn't know of any churches growing up except one united church in my city that was uh, supportive of the queer community. Mm. And now I know lots. And so that to me says either I'm paying more attention or uh, there has been a change. But I'm also seeing lots of resistance from other communities who are working really hard to keep, keep what feels familiar to them protected. Right. I think you're, I, I think I have the same experience that you have or perception in that I do see more acceptance and more, you know, progressiveness for lack of a better term, like in those areas, um, certainly, you know, a, a difference between now and when I was growing up. And that's, you know, I, I call that good. I, call, mm-hmm. I I like that. I like to see that, uh, you know, and I, I, I want, I want more of it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I hope that the the invitation to the table gets wider and wider and mm. wider and wider and wider. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All I want for the future of the church. Right. For for any community is that uh there are more and more seats at the table than ever before. Mm. Yeah. Us sitting next to each other is as equals, right? As humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a question here from Lucy. She's at Collie Burl on Instagram. She asks, this is about 
uh, complex PTSD. Okay. Uh, she asks, is somatic therapy effective for CPTSD? Yeah, uh, somatic therapy is extremely effective. And what's often most effective about any therapy is the experience of being deeply attuned to by another who is non-judgmental and loving and present and really paying attention to you. So our body tells the story of the trauma that we've been through, but the trauma didn't happen in isolation. It happened with someone who was supposed to be caring and protective and wasn't. So when you can get into a room with somebody who, who is regulated, who is attuned to you, who can uh, co-regulate you and dyadically regulate you using all sorts of clinical interventions, um, there are lots of entry points for working with complex PTSD. One of my favorite is actually AEDP, Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, or Internal Family Systems Therapy, IFS. Uh, but I think any anything that uses the body as an entry point, any, and both of those do, uh, anything that goes bottom up in processing instead of cognition down is going to be highly effective. And instead of thinking necessarily about the right kind of therapy, looking for the right clinician who who isn't overwhelmed by your history or your symptoms and who knows how to skillfully process bottom up with you. Hmm. Take you there. Yeah. I'm sure you've read the book, The Body Keeps the Score. I have, yes. Oh my gosh. I love that book so much. And I, I just thinking about, like, I love to see um, this shift in yeah. thinking about the body and how we hold things in our body and, and that being such a crucial part of it when uh, at a time maybe it wasn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Um, let's see. Uh I'm honoring of your time. <laughs> Let's wrap it up. So we Great. always wrap up the show talking about our empathy heroes. Great. <clears throat> these are <clears throat> these are people in our lives who uh, are great, empathetic, wholehearted people. Uh, I'll go first <clears throat> mm-hmm. to give you a second. My empathy heroes this week are uh, is actually uh, two people who started a podcast. It's called Staying In with Emily and Kumail. This is Emily V. Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani. Um, they're both writer, uh, <laughs> comedian, actors. And they have this podcast that's all about uh, dealing with uh, um, the pandemic that's going on. And it's delightful. Yeah. It's informative. And they're just good-hearted people. And I really recommend it. So Emily and Kumail are my empathy heroes this week. That's awesome. Yeah. How about you? That's awesome. Uh, my, friend, my friend Kelsey is my empathy hero this week. I had a, I got some hard news last week about something I was really looking forward to being canceled and I was, I was really devastated and, Mm. and I called her and she just held, held me kind of verbally on the phone while I was, I was really distressed and sad and grieving the loss. And uh, I felt so attuned to and safe with her. I knew I could call and I also uh, felt so, so seen and accompanied in that, that it felt like the grief subsided and, and the sadness could release a bit. So my empathy hero this week is my friend Kelsey. Oh, well, I'm, I'm so happy you had Kelsey there. Mm. Uh, Hillary, uh, where can the Feely humans out there connect with you and learn more about the work you're doing mm. in the world? Yeah, everybody can uh, get me on social media on Instagram. I'm at Hillary Leanna McBride and on Twitter, Hillary L McBride. I've got a website, Hillary L McBride.com. You can listen to me on the Liturgist podcast. I've got a new project coming out with Mike McCarg that we'll be releasing in a couple of weeks uh, online. So check out our social media for details on that. But it's going to be called How We Feel. So all about feeling and emotion. And then I have a book coming out. I've got a couple books that already, but my next big book will be all about the body. It's called This Is My Body. And we go through emotion and trauma and pain and illness and body image and I mean really every intersection with the body you can imagine and that's out going to be out early 2021 so probably nine months from now and uh, other people's problems is a podcast that's produced by uh, CBC which is kind of like Canada's NPR Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, it follows some of my patients who have given consent to have me audio record our sessions together and lets you listen in to what me doing therapy with them sounds like 
Amazing. And I've listened to other people's problems, listeners, and it's amazing. Go check it out. All those links are in the show notes. Hillary, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you. And uh, yeah, you're the best. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. Of course. And as always, I'm here. You're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot. We have each (laughs) other. It's you, me, empathy. (laughs) 